First Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll read from the end of last week, just so that you can see how joined up the argument is here. Chapter 12, verse 30. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But be zealous for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or easily provoked. It does not count up wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. It's a dangerous thing to make an enemy of an artist. It was 1508 when Michelangelo was forced to start painting the Sistine Chapel, the work that would become his great masterpiece. But he was not a happy man. There were rumors that Pope Julius had given him the job purely to humiliate him. At one point, Michelangelo took the throwing planks of wood down at the Pope from the scaffolding. Julius responded by having Michelangelo publicly beaten. But artists have their way of getting revenge. When the work was all done, people couldn't help but notice how a painting of the prophet Zechariah bore an uncanny resemblance to Pope Julius himself. And behind him stood a fat little cherub, giving the Renaissance equivalent of the middle finger. <laughs> 25 years later, he got another shot when he was commissioned to paint the Last Judgment. And somehow or other, it just worked out that the gaping mouth of hell ended up right behind the papal throne. Never make trouble with an artist. Well, if you've been around Bible teaching churches for any time at all, you can probably see where this is going. If you've ever heard the talks about 
reading the Bible like the people it was written to would have heard it, well, almost certainly this passage would have been used as an example. We have a shorthand name for that Bible reading principle, don't we? We call it traveling to Corinth. Read this passage as if it was plucked out of a book of poetry and written straight to us. And it sounds perfect for beautiful weddings or Valentine's Day cards. Travel back to Corinth and ask why it was written to them. And you realize this is one of the most insulting chapters in the whole Bible. Every word here is as pointed as they come. When Paul describes love, he doesn't pluck nice sentiments out of the air. He plucks painful memories out of his own relationship with them. The basic rule here is that if Paul says love does not, then the Corinthians do. So this is a lesson in love for the loveless. Every single line reaches back to something he's had to rebuke them about already in this letter. It's about as romantic and sentimental as a slap in the face. But then most of you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? If you've read your Dig Deepers or your students in a good training church, well, so far, so predictable. Except that if we stop there, it does seem to miss something, doesn't it? As a slap in the face goes, this one is rather beautiful. We might be very smug about not having it read at our weddings anymore, but it's not for no reason that so many people do choose it. This rebuke is Paul's masterpiece. He might have dreaded writing it just as fiercely as Michelangelo tried to get out of decorating the Sistine Chapel, but when it had to be said... He said it like this. He could have just written, you guys have no idea what love looks like, do you? And got the job done with far less sweat. But he didn't. He wrote a hymn. So why is that? Why pour so much beauty and craft into something this sharp and uncomfortable? I suspect it's a sign that this little chapter is doing far more work in the letter than we might realize. Love is a word that we've used quite a lot in these sermons, but it's not a word Paul has used that often up until now. It wouldn't be on our list of big First Corinthian buzzwords like wisdom or knowledge or strength. It's a word he's crept up on rather slowly, but when it comes, it comes right at the heart of the letter in a way that is big and loud and beautiful and arresting. Notice how this chapter is right at the heart of the whole argument over gifts. Paul told them at the end of chapter 12 that there was a more excellent way to think about giftedness than their competitive spirituality. They were to be zealous for the greater gifts. And look how this chapter ends. The greatest thing of all is love. Here is the more excellent way. The thing that should control all of our thinking about gifts and giftedness and our place in a church family. Do you see how this chapter is anchored right into that argument in verses 1 and 2 with the mention of tongues and prophecy? The very next chapter begins with a command to pursue love. And once again, that means being zealous for a certain kind of activity. 
So 1 Corinthians 13 is right at the heart of everything Paul will say in these three chapters about the work of God's Spirit. But more than that, 1 Corinthians 13 is at the heart of everything Paul will say in this letter. Because love in this letter has a face. In fact, love has two faces. Remember the whole meta-argument as Paul's been addressing this horrible, competitive form of Christianity. He's been telling them, you Corinthians need to learn to follow me, your apostle, as I follow Jesus. You need to learn what it means to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. He hasn't often talked about that in terms of self-giving love, but now he comes to describe love in the most beautiful way he can. And do you notice how he speaks of it? Almost as if it were a person. Love is patient. Love is kind. Almost certainly he has a person in mind, the one that he loves to follow. Love here isn't abstract and sentimental. Love is something patterned after Jesus. That has been the whole argument of the letter. What Paul means by love is a heartfelt interest in another, in someone outside of yourself. Love looks beyond your own needs and puts their interests and concerns ahead of yours. It's Jesus-like love that Paul has in mind, the kind they absolutely detest when they see it in him, their weak apostle. Which is why this chapter will get deeply personal, but it's also why this is Paul's great work of art. Because the love of God in Jesus is the thing that most makes his heart sing. And the more beautifully he shows us that, the more cutting his rebuke becomes as he lays bare the enormous gulf between the Corinthians and their Lord. Growing in God's spirit isn't about growing in giftedness. That's what this chapter is here to say. Growing in God the spirit is about growing in Jesus, in Christ-likeness. That is spiritual maturity. The more excellent way is following the one who said, I am the way. That's what Paul is going to show us. Three things that Jesus' way rejects. And the first in verses one to three is giftedness without love. Meet Mr. Perfect, where Introduced here to the kind of person who, frankly, we would be falling over ourselves to have at ENC. He's got all the speech gifts. He can talk in the languages of heaven, whether that is meant to be ironic or genuine, I'm not sure. But he has powerful insights into God's word, verse 2, always able to put his finger right on the issue our culture needs to hear. And not only that, he has faith that can move mountains, a gift of unique adventurous trust. He's willing to step out, take risks for the gospel. He's got a heart for the poor, a social conscience, giving away all he has. And if it comes to it, he's prepared even to die for the sake of the gospel, to deliver up his body to be burned or to boast, depending on your translation. And can't you just tell this guy would also be able to play guitar and know how to sing? He is disgustingly gifted. Every so often working in a big student church, you get one like that and you notice them immediately. 
by the time he's in his third year, he's been marked down as a BWW, a boy worth watching. And all of the big churches are fighting over who will get him to be an apprentice. There's only one problem. (laughs) He has all the gifts you could hope for, but they don't flow out from a life of love. And without that, no matter how impressive a Christian he is, none of it means a bean. You see, love is not just one of the gifts so that some of us are preachers and some of us are evangelists and some of us are loving. No, love is a fruit God's Spirit works in all Christians as he makes us like Jesus. Love is the thing which all of our gifts are meant to be driven by. And so without it, well, look what Paul says. He serves nothing. He is nothing. He gains nothing. A loveless speaker serves nothing. He clangs into the air like a gong or a cymbal. But nobody's served. No one benefits. It's a meaningless sound. The pagans would clash their symbols at the temple to ward off evil spirits and grab their god's attention. So you see the irony here? Loveless speech puts you right back in the pagan temple. Church might be full of spiritual stuff, but you may as well be banging rubbish cans and serving a made-up God. I can move mountains with my faith. Surely faith is the thing that makes me a Christian. Well, no, verse 2, without love, I am nothing. And as for a loveless martyr, verse 3, Well, how many churches are full of them? Serving, 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 but always with a resentful moan and self-pity. And it's just a waste of a life, nothing gained. Whether it's the gifts the Corinthians most prized, like tongues, or the ones Paul himself most prized, like prophecy, or the ones we prize, giftedness on its own means nothing. It's love which shows that God's spirit is behind it all. Not as an alternative to gift, his gifts are good things. Not even just as the motivation for using our gifts, but as the thing which marks the whole life in which our gifts are used. Now it's worth noticing one more thing about these first three verses, and that is just how deeply personal they are. Notice how abruptly Paul switches here into the first person, I. And I guess that's partly just poetic style, isn't it? Except that if there was anyone the Corinthians knew who exemplified all of these gifts, it was Paul. They will get the shock of their lives in a chapter's time to hear that Paul spoke in tongues more than any of them. Because I suspect he never led on. He did speak the mysteries of God. He did, in the end, even offer up his body, just like his Lord. It's almost as if he's asking them, is this what you saw in me? Is this really what you think I am? He loved them with extraordinary patience and grace, didn't he? Paul the Apostle, whose giftedness meant so little to them that they barely recognized it. And yet his came through a life of deep, costly love as he followed his Lord. Maybe it's worth asking then, well, how do we grow in that, in genuine love for one another? What do we do if it's not there? I think the best answer I got to that was from Dick Lucas, a pastor in his late 80s now. I was just 
beginning as a preacher, and I remember worrying about being so wrapped up in all the mechanics of getting a sermon across that I would hardly think about the people sitting and listening to me. And I asked Dick what to do about that. How do you grow in love for the people you minister to? And his reply rather took me back. Oh, brother, don't you worry about loving them. That'll come. Feed them. Look after them. I think with time, I've started to see what he meant there. You never grow in love for people without being with them. There's no shortcut. It takes time, not just for preachers, for all of us. Serving, listening, getting to know each other, dying to self a little, facing things together, crying on each other's shoulders. There's no shortcut. But as you give yourself to the things Jesus' spirit is interested in, that fruit starts to grow. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus' way rejects in verses 4 to 7, and that is love without content. Did you notice how my question to Dick was more about my feelings? I was more worried about feeling the right things for other people, but his answer was far more focused on actions. Feed them. Look after them. It's not that love in the Bible has nothing to do with how we feel. Love is a heartfelt concern for someone else. But love isn't something we just fall into. It's something we decide on. It's a behavior as much as an emotion. If life was one big Bollywood romance, then love could never be something you were commanded to. Because that's not how it works, is it, in the movies? We think of love as a big, squishy, sentimental feeling. It's either there or it ain't. But the Bible commands love all the time. Because love in the Bible has content. It looks like Jesus. Now, I bet there has never been a church that didn't like to think of itself as a loving place. Every church wants to be that, don't we? But what if your kind of love looks nothing like him? Well, whatever that is, you think your feeling says, verses four to seven, it isn't love. One writer suggests reading through these verses and swapping in your own name in place of that word love. See how far you get before it becomes too embarrassing to continue. Rupert is patient and kind. Rupert does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Lord have mercy, I need to stop already. All of us, I'd imagine, would find it pretty hard to read like that, wouldn't we? All except one man. Well, that is a pretty helpful exercise, I think, to drive these words home. But it does slightly miss one thing. And that is that Paul fills this word love with a very specific content here. And as much as I or you might struggle with the same things, if he were writing to me, he might have exposed some entirely different failures. But every single one of the things he's chosen here go to the heart of the conflict between him and the Corinthians. And that's what makes these verses so exquisitely painful for them to read. Love is patient. Was that love, friends, on show at your church meals when you couldn't even wait for one another at the communion table? Love is kind. 
Was it kindness when you humiliated the poor? When you looked down on the weak? Love doesn't envy. And yet I've had to write a whole letter to a church divided into factions. Chapter 3, verse 3, there is jealousy and strife among you. All busily resenting what others have. Their leaders, their marriages, their gifting. Is that love? Love doesn't boast, but your pet preachers, they seem to collect people like trophies. You call other Christians weak, you call yourselves spirituals. Tell me, friends, is that love? Love isn't arrogant or proud, but chapter 5, you think you've got something to brag about even when you're sleeping around and you're riven with divisions. You boast about it. Is that love? Love isn't rude or unseemly, but the way your men and women behave towards each other scandalizes even the pagans. Outsiders come to church, chapter 14, and they are utterly alienated by your behavior. It is unseemly. Is that love? Love does not insist on its own way. Where was that when you were busy saying, all things are lawful for me? Where was that when you stood on every right and trashed every tender conscience? Was that love? Love isn't irritable or easily provoked. But you lot seem so touchy, you won't even talk to people who belong in a different tribe. You're unwilling to climb down, so unwilling that you've got lawsuits filed against each other. Friends, whatever that is you're feeling, it is nothing like Jesus. It isn't love. No, love is not resentful. Literally, love keeps no record of wrongs. Because love refuses to act out of self-interest. It's open to being hurt by someone else. It doesn't need to keep score. It would rather suffer wrong than demand its apology or get its revenge. It can let things go, not store them up. Love doesn't delight in evil. It doesn't secretly rejoice when others fall and fail and are shown to be as human as you. No, love delights in truth. The truth, I guess, that these brothers and sisters are bought by blood and filled with the same spirit as you are. Love bears all things. It will never say, enough is enough. I'm done with forgiveness. It believes all things. That doesn't mean it's naive. It means that no matter what, love holds on to God and perseveres. In and through any amount of hurt or pain or disappointment with other people, love says God is judge and I can leave it in his hands and keep on giving. It hopes all things. It never stops trying for a day when things are better. Never stops texting or reaching out. It doesn't give up on people. Love endures all things, even the slights and the cold shoulders of superior Christians. Every single word is written to sting. Because it showed that Corinth was a loveless church. Whatever delusions they might have had about being especially spiritual, theirs was love without content. All the worse because they were so very loved. 
both by a saviour and an apostle who were deeply patient and kind with them. Not boastful, but self-giving to the very end. Slow to anger, abounding in patience and hopefulness and dogged endurance with his people. Love to the loveless shown. And what is being a Christian if it's not all about him? Well, that's the question Paul presses home in the last few verses. The Corinthian way involved giftedness without love, love without content. And finally, in verses 8 to 13, it claimed maturity without him, without Jesus. There's a phase, I guess, in most kids' lives when they discover the mirror And it's lots of fun, isn't it, to put on adult clothes and dance around singing into a hairbrush, staring at your own reflection. And the irony is that when you're seven, that feels so grown up. But if you're caught doing that at 17, you feel a little bit like a child. Well, in a similar way, the spiritual ones in Corinth have convinced themselves that they've arrived. They were already Christians, speaking like the angels, outgrowing Paul, Already we've become rich in matters spiritual. But the truth is they were dancing in front of a mirror because the very things that persuaded them that they'd arrived at Christian maturity were things which belong to this age of growing up. What is Christianity all about? It's about growing like Jesus, becoming like the one we will be with forever. One day we will see God face to face in the person of his son. But for now, we know him indirectly. It's a true reflection, but it's partial. It might be wonderful to spend an evening hanging out with your wife on Zoom. You see a true picture, but it's not the same thing as gazing into her eyes over a candlelit meal. While God gave the early church all sorts of ways to know him truly, And to grow like him, prophecy, tongues, special knowledge that they prided themselves in. They were good things. But they're like protractors and compasses and shatterproof rulers. They're meant for school. If you went into your office now as a grown-up and you laid those out proudly and neatly on your desk, it might not make you look as mature as you'd like to think. And that, by the way, is a message Paul trailed right back at the start of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 7, we remembered the first half of this verse last time. Corporately, you Corinthians are not lacking in any gift of grace. But how does that verse carry on? You're not lacking in any gift as you eagerly wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gifts are for. They're to help us wait in this age when together we are growing up into Jesus. But love, verse 8, love is not like that. Love is what we're growing into. One day we will know God as fully and perfectly as he knows us. And we'll understand at last what it means that God is love through and through. If he is at the heart of eternity then self-giving love is one thing that will never, ever go out of fashion. It's a humbling illustration, isn't it? The point is that now we know a lot less than we think we do. This is a time for humility, not 
for arrogance and boasting between different flavors of Christianity. And that's not just for the Corinthians. We have not arrived yet either. So what counts now as we grow into Jesus? Well, three things every Christian shares, every spiritual person, faith, hope, love. Now, he says, now, I think that means in the present life of the church, those three things remain on the table for every one of us. And the greatest of those is the one that abides forever. When faith becomes sight, face to face, and when hope gives way to having, love will still be the mark of every one of Jesus' people, because love is the mark of God. Of those three, John Calvin comments, it is only love which we pour out for the good of other people. So you want to know which are the greater gifts? Which ones help you look more like Jesus by pouring yourself out into them? Well, it is a beautiful chapter, isn't it? The most beautiful slap in the face ever written. Because he wants loveless Christians to see the beauty of the one we're growing into. Growing in his spirit is not about growing in giftedness. It's about learning to use whatever it is we've got, whatever he's given us, in a way that looks like him. Let's bow our heads. And in a moment's quiet, Father, we bring you those particular people that we know we have been struggling to love as you love them in Christ. Merciful God, would you change our hearts and our behavior towards them? Forgive us where we've been impatient unkind, envious, proud. Forgive us for seeking our own way, being so quick to anger, for keeping score of every slight and every wrong, for rejoicing in their fall and not your truth. Lord God, thank you that your love for us has been nothing like that. Thank you that Jesus, your son, endured all things in love for us. Help us, we pray, to serve and to accept one another and to love more like him. Amen.